We have a door frame at our house, and on one side of the door frame, you see these little pencil markings and little notches that we've put our kids up against just to see them how much they've grown over the years. Um, it's actually kind of an eyesore, but I can't get myself to wipe it off. There's like Sharpie, red pen, you know, pink. So it's a very colorful array of notches. And, um, and when I see just how much they've jumped up over the years, I can't help but think that kids grow up so fast, don't they? Um, I mean, sometimes they grow super slow, you know, like those months before they learn to sleep through the night, snail pace, right? And those times when they're going through their terrible twos and, and they're in, like having a temper tantrum in the candy aisle and they do that superpower thing where they just kind of drop like dead weight and suddenly your toddler is heavy as an elephant. You know, you're like, oh, please just grow up faster, right? But our daughter, our um, third child, she just celebrated her eighth birthday. And we looked at some of her baby pictures and some of her eight-year-old pictures now. And we can't help but think, how did this happen? You know, just yesterday, honestly, just yesterday, I was walking down that aisle. And now we have these four big babies, right? And another obvious marker that um, another obvious marker that uh, that the kids are growing up is the type of math problems they come they bring to me for help, right? So this is Eli. That's Eli. What when he's three years old? You know, learning that one plus one equals to two. Drawing him little pictures showing how that works. And then this is Eli now, 13 years old. That's a extended matrix. On the left side, those are coefficients of the variables. And on the right side of the, the little line, those are the constants. And you kind of manipulate it. OK, well, forget it. So that, that it kind of indicates his mind has grown in capacity that he's able to do this, right? So we can see how our kids have grown physically and mentally. But it leads me to another question. How have they grown spiritually? And it's an important question to consider even for ourselves, especially for those of us that have been sitting in these pews year after year. How have we grown spiritually? And Pastor Albert and I, we were having lunch with our former DS one day, Jerry Ferguson. I don't know if you remember him. But he was having a meal with us, and he was describing to us the first pastoral assignment that he had. And it was a 30-year-old church. It's been around for 30 years. So when he entered the scene, he expected to encounter 30-year-old Christians. But instead, he found one-year-old Christians recycled 30 times. So the question is, how have we grown spiritually over the years? So right now, we are in the middle of a sermon called, I Love My Church. And it's true. I really do. And it's kind of weird how much I love this church. And I think when God gives you an assignment... And when you kind of walk out in obedience, he gives you this weird supernatural love for the people that is under your care. So Pastor Albert, Pastor Johnny, myself, we love you guys. We really, really do. You know, and it gives me such a deep sense of joy 
when I see the church becoming more and more like Jesus. You know, when I see, and I hate to pick out people, but when I see Karen raising her hand and worshiping the Lord, I feel joy. You know, when I see, I don't even remember your names. I just met you once. When I see them just being obedient, I'll stay overnight. There's just something in me that just makes me want to break down and cry like a baby. When I see you being kind to each other, when I see you reading the Bible and coming to Sunday school and sharing the things the Lord has told you over the week, it gives me great joy. And on the flip side, you know, when I see you missing church for one reason or another, or during worship, it's, it's lifeless, and, and there's no excitement in worshiping the Lord, or when I see people treating each other unkindly, or your faith is stagnant, I have to tell you the truth, it's disheartening. So our pastors, during this sermon series, we want to focus on areas five areas to preach on and develop during the series, right? It's also known as the five purposes at some churches. It's worship, fellowship, discipleship, ministry, and evangelism, and how we can grow as a church in these areas. And if you'd like to join in the conversation, uh, you can text me at that number or tweet, Um, especially for those that have questions that are new to the faith and are wondering about things, just feel free to text. Or you can hunt us down and talk to us in person. You can email us. Um, But feel free to join the conversation through that way. So, so far in our series, we've learned to grow stronger through worship and how we grow warmer through fellowship. Today, we are going to talk about how we grow deeper through discipleship. Deeper through discipleship. Earlier, I asked you to discuss with someone what it does it take to become a Christian, what does it take to be a disciple. So we're going to talk about the word disciple today, this morning. Disciple. The original Greek is mathetes, which means a learner, a follower of Christ who learns the doctrines of Scripture and the lifestyle they require. This is what a disciple is. This is in your outline, so if you want to fill it out. You can. Disciple, a learner, a follower of Christ who learns the doctrines of scriptures and the lifestyle they require. And actually, the word mathematics comes from this, right? Meaning the mental effort learned needed to think something through, right? The mental effort. Mathetes, disciple. So let's turn to scripture. Let's, Let's turn to scripture and see what it says about following Jesus. We're going to turn to Luke chapter 9, verses 57 to 62. It's in your handout, or you can open your Bibles. Okay, Luke chapter 9, 57 to 62. As they were walking along the road, and we are talking about Jesus and his disciples, they are on their way to Jerusalem, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Boxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And he said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go proclaim the kingdom of God. And still another said, 
I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back, is fit for service in the kingdom of God. So let's look at this a little closer. There seems to be three men here volunteering to be disciples, to be followers of Jesus. And on paper, they seem to be pretty legitimate to me, right? So now imagine someone coming up to you and saying that. You know, like, Rias, come here, stand up right here. Imagine somebody come up to it, coming up to you and say, I will follow you wherever you go. Right? Except besides the fact that it's sounding a little bit creepy, right? It sounds unconditional, doesn't it? You can have a seat, Rias. Right? So this is what this man is doing. He's going up to Jesus and saying, I will follow you wherever you go. The second man, he says, okay, Jesus, I am going to follow you, but give me a little time. Let me go back and bury my father first. And that sounds pretty decent, doesn't it? The respectful thing to do as a son, it is his duty to bury your father, his father when he passes away. Sounds like a decent guy. And the third guy, he says, I'm ready to go too. I will follow you, but first let me go and say goodbye to my family. Another outstanding individual who wants to pay respects to the family, say goodbye. And if I was hiring for a job, all three of them would have gotten it. But Jesus, he sees things differently. He knows the cost of following him. And these three, for one reason or another, they don't make the cut. So to the first guy, he says, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. So what is he saying? The man was saying, I will follow you wherever you go, but Jesus, he must have seen something in his heart that disqualified him. Could it have been that this man said, I will follow you wherever you go, geographically speaking? Right? So if it was in my context, I could have said, Jesus, I will go. I will move to Roland Heights if you want me to. I will move to Canada. I will go there, Jesus, if you are sending me. I will even go overseas, Jesus, if that's where you want me to go. Because I know that you love me, that you will watch over me, that you are for me. I will go. But what if he's asked me to take the road of suffering? What then? What about the road to Jerusalem? His last journey to the city where he was going to be crucified on the cross. Would I go with him then? Would you go with him then? Would you follow Jesus to a path of suffering? It says he has no place to lay his head, no comforts of home. How far are you willing to go? So the first point, a follower of Jesus must be prepared to take the road of suffering. A follower of Jesus must be prepared to take the road of suffering. Now we have the second man, right? He wants to bury his father first. And I do want to emphasize the word first. 
right? And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And in the original Greek, the translation kind of lands to the interpretation that dead is also meaning spiritually dead, right? So Jesus, in fact, is saying, okay, those people that don't know what it means to have eternal life, those people that are of the world, that don't know what it means to have eternal life in Jesus Christ, let them deal with the worldly affairs. But you, you know what it means to have salvation in Jesus Christ. Let you be of the affairs of the kingdom. But this man, he says he needs to bury his father first. So seek first the kingdom of God. That's what it says in the Bible. Proclaim life. What does it mean to have abundant life? Don't be concerned with the dead. So what is it? What, what is it that we do? Or what do we put before Jesus? What do we put first before him? For some of us, it's academics, right? We have kids. You know, if they have too much homework, we don't send them to youth group on Friday night, or we skip church. They have a project that they need to do. For some of us, it's um, work, right? We are so overworked, we have no margin in our lives that we don't have time to study his word or, or to go um, join a small group, right? For some of us, it's entertainment. We spend all our, our money on toys, and we don't have enough to tithe or to support a missionary. For some of us, it's our family. We say, you know what, I've got my own kids to take care of. You know, I, I can't serve at the church, not during this season. And for some of us, it's, it's our own comfort. Right? Every year I say, I am not going to run that marathon again. No. And then John Huddle comes along. He does his, like, rah, rah, let's run for clean water. Those poor children without water, they're going to die. And I have to do it. Right? Sometimes we put our comfort before the kingdom. So that second point is a father of Jesus must be ready to put the affairs of the kingdom before the affairs of the world. Right? We must be ready to put the affairs of the kingdom before the affairs of the world. So the third man is similar to the second, right? He says, I will follow you, but first let me go say goodbye to my family. And Jesus says a, a curious thing in response. He says, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. What does this mean? And so there's some farming fact that will give you a little more clarity in what Jesus is saying. When you are plowing and you're looking back, it's impossible to plow straight. Right? You need to fix something, your eyes up ahead, and that is how farmers plow straight. Right? It's like when you're driving and you see something distracting on the road and you kind of turn, you're like, whoa, and you kind of veer back to the front, right? I mean, this is kind of a sad sermon illustration, but I used to live up into the Rocky Mountains, and we would hear stories of tourists going to those Rocky Mountains, Banff National Park, beautiful mountains, and they got so distracted, they'd fall, uh, drive right off the cliff. Right? Distracted by the beauty of the mountains. And maybe Jesus knew. Maybe Jesus knew that this man, his heart would be distracted by saying goodbye to his family. And it would lead him off the path of following the Lord. 
So what is it that tempts us, right? That keeps us from following the Lord to the end? Is it perhaps greed or, or an addiction that you love more than Jesus, an unhealthy relationship? I knew a man that could not let go of, of the, an affair that he was having, right? He just could not give that up for God, right? Maybe it's something good, like maybe it's like our children, that we replace following Jesus with raising our children. Or maybe it's um, our spouse, you know, situations I've heard over and over again of, of people not being able to serve the Lord or join a life group because their spouse wanted them home all the time, serving them. So what is it? What keeps you from following Jesus? The third point, a follower of Jesus must be willing to turn their back on temptations or distractions. Right? They must be willing to turn their back on temptations or distractions. So in all three situations, Jesus makes it very clear. He doesn't want just a part of us, right? He doesn't want a slice of our lives. He did not come to earth and die on the cross for a slice of our life, right? He wants the whole pie. He wants everything. He wants the good and the bad, the ugly. He wants our relationships. He wants our families. He wants our money, our time. He wants our sinful desires. He wants our addictions. He wants our brokenness, our rights for revenge, our need to defend ourselves, all these things. He wants every part of us. He wants us to submit everything under his lordship. He refuses to take half-hearted gestures, right? Two hours on a Sunday morning. That's not enough for him. He wants 24-7. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a, a nice things or, or the comforts of home or, or fulfilling obligations to the family or having a job you love. None of this is a bad thing, but it becomes a sin if it keeps you from wholeheartedly following the Lord. A disciple of Jesus submits every part of their lives to Jesus and holds nothing back, hands wide open. So when I was in college, I was dating this guy. Don't tell Pastor Albert, okay? <laughs> so I was dating this guy. And, you know, on paper, he, he was great, right? Like, his, his dad was one of the leaders of the church. You know, this guy and I, we, we were, you know, teaching Sunday school together. But there was... Just a lot of unhealth in our relationship. A lot of unhealth. And we were already talking about our kids' names, you know, like just all these things. And, and people warned me about him, that he could be abusive. And, and I knew that I was keeping that relationship tight-fisted right over in my heart. I did not want to offer it to God. I did not want to say, okay, God, lead me. Do you want me to stay away? Like... I was not ready for, to do that at all. And it really kept me from having a deep relationship with the Lord. He knew, the Lord knew that I was holding it deep in my hands, tight-fisted. But Jesus, he wants us to be completely open-handed in every part of our life. Now, some of you are thinking, you know, well, I don't know, that's a little 
intense for me. I think I'd like to order package B instead. You know, the light version, right? You're saying to yourself, I'll just be a Christian, not a disciple. But here's the problem with that. Jesus never said there was a package B. He never said there were two standards available. It was all or nothing. You're either a child of light or you're a child of darkness. The word Christian, literally meaning little Christ, it only happens three times in the Bible. The word disciple occurs 230 times. There is never an indication that you can be a Christian and not a disciple. It goes hand in hand. If you proclaim to be a Christian, you are a disciple. And maybe the question is, what kind of disciple? Are you a good disciple or a stagnant disciple? Are you a false disciple? So it says in um, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, it says to examine yourselves and to see whether you are in the faith, test yourselves. Do, not, do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? So let us examine ourselves. In your outlines, I've given you some broad areas on the, on the flip side, some key aspects of being a Christian. And if you were going to grade yourself, how would you do? So if you have a pen or a pencil. Now, I realize that everybody is at different points in your journey with the Lord. You know, I realize that. Um, so I want you to uh, grade yourself, not from comparing yourself to the person beside you, but comparing yourself to where you were a year ago or two years ago or a decade ago. It's up to you, right? Because when I want to see how Jenna has grown, I don't compare her to Eli. I compare it to her a month ago. Or if I want to see how well she's improving in math, I don't compare her to Eli. I compare her to herself a year ago, right? So there is no right or wrong answer. Like there's, you know, people that give themselves a three in one area could actually equal somebody else's eight, right? This is just for your eyes only. But I want it to be a meaningful exercise where you kind of examine where yourself, uh, where you are in your spiritual growth. How much have you grown um, between one to ten in these following areas? So number one, I make it a priority to come to church on Sundays. Now I know some things come up, right? You go on a trip or something like that. But what's more important, right? Church or because you're feeling a little tired, you stay at home, right? So just kind of grade yourself. How often do you come to church? Okay, I give a tithe, 10% to the church. Now this is a challenge for some of us, right? You know, some of us, you just give $5 in the offering plate and that's, that's a lot. But, you know, as you mature in the Lord, our spirit in us, God's spirit in us, makes us more generous. And a lot of mature Christians, they tithe, they give 10%. Three, find ways to serve meaningfully in church. Is anybody here that's been sitting in the pews for the past 20 years and have not lifted a finger to help serve in any capacity? Right? Grade yourself in that. I participate in small groups outside of Sunday worship where I let others speak into my life. Do you let people speak into your lives? Do you, besides Sunday morning, do you go and, um, and participate in a small group or a Sunday school? 
I pray daily, trusting that God uses those moments to transform my heart. I cannot tell you how important prayer is in your spiritual growth. So important. If you do not know how to pray, come talk to me. Right? It is a very simple thing. Right? Come to these Saturday morning prayer meetings. Okay? Learn how to pray. It will transform your life and the people around you. Um, I am much kinder, patient, and selfless in my close relationships. Your spouse or your children or your parents, would they say, oh, yeah, she's a lot more patient, or he's, he's a lot kinder to us, or whatever, right? So grade yourself that way. Seven, I find ways to see my workplace or school as a mission field. Sometimes we separate church life, work life. Jesus wants every part. Right? I know you've, some, some of you work at a place where you can't really you know, talk about Jesus or whatnot, but do you show through action? I actively invest in someone by mentoring them and seek mentoring from others. If you are not discipling someone else, can you be called a follower of Jesus? Jesus, this whole existence on the planet was teaching, disciple, disciple, disciple one another. Is there somebody that you're discipling or are you going to someone else for mentorship to help you grow spiritually? I encourage you to find someone. Number nine, my understanding of the Bible has increased and I apply its truth to my life. No, I know, you know, some of you have had the Bible on a shelf, you've come to church for 20 years, you still don't know how to read the Bible. You know, join a Sunday school class. Learn how to read the Bible. Number 10, my compassion for the wounded and marginalized has increased and I, do some, and I do something about it. Some of you have been walking with the Lord for decades and decades and decades and your heart has not formed a compassion for those that need our help. If our faith has no feet to it, is it real faith? Number 11, my concern for the lost has increased and I share my faith. If we believe the gospel to be true, how could we not share it with the people around us? And number 12, my character displays the fruits of the Spirit increasingly. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Are you growing in these areas? So have you improved or developed in each of these areas? You know, grade yourself, examine yourself, let the Holy Spirit just speak to you about the places that you need to grow. When you look at this measuring stick, this mental exercise that we're doing, is it like, you know, when I see Eli, like he's so tall now, I know he's still a scrawny little kid, but when I see how much he's grown, on the, can you see that in your spiritual life? Are you still stuck at one plus one equals two? Or are you doing extended matrices? Right? How are you growing spiritually? If your faith hasn't led you to a deeper love for Jesus, and I mean really loving him, not out of duty or obligation, really loving the Lord or loving your neighbors, then perhaps you should seriously consider on whether or not Jesus is really your Lord and King. And if you have not increasingly been growing in the likeness of Christ, perhaps you should question, is Jesus really the one that I'm following? And you know, maybe it's not your fault. 
maybe the American church has portrayed a relationship with Jesus as just one sinner's prayer. Yes, I accept Jesus in my heart. Done. Right? Maybe we have been taught that it's just a transaction, like, you know, an ATM machine or a ticket. Yeah, okay, I got the ticket. I am now a follower of Jesus and will get to heaven. Maybe it's like a flu shot, right? Yes, I've been vaccinated. But it should concern us that Jesus never told anyone in the Bible to accept him in his heart. Jesus never led anyone through a sinner's prayer, not once. You know, rather, he says, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. He says, if you love me, you would obey me. He says, deny yourself, take your cross, and follow me. He says, make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything I taught you. He says, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. He says, lay your life down for another. And some of us can't even lay a parking lot, parking spot down for another. Be careful that we do not buy into a false version of the gospel, a cheap version of grace. It will lead you to a pathway of misery and death. But here's some good news. First of all, we don't need to do this on our own, right? God sends his Holy Spirit to empower us and guide us into, into righteousness. And, and do you believe this? Like, do you believe that God has the power to do that, right? Me? When I get stressed, I yell. All right? I yell, and Albert admonishes me, and he says, you know, and he says, you know, that is not the right way to speak to the children. And I say, do you realize you married? You know, talk to any guy married to a Korean woman. They will yell. You know, it must be the kimchi in them or what, right? Korean women, they yell. All right? But God, he's a God that makes all things new. Right? We are grafted into the vine of Jesus. The patterns that we learned from our parents or the kimchi in us or whatever it is, right? That's all secondary to the fact that Christ is our Lord and his Holy Spirit is in us and he's making all things new. Do you believe that? Second of all, good news, second good news is that God's forgiveness is unlimited. He knows that you won't get it right the first time, or the second, or the third time. If we could, he would not have to send Jesus to die on the cross. There is no limit to his mercy for those that are sincerely repentant. He forgives, and then he forgives, and then he forgives. So how do we grow? Okay, so here's, I'm going to just show you that we're going to end soon. The three of the most effective ways to grow is instruction, imitation, and immersion. All right? This is actually um, Albert taught a discipleship workshop at a, 
at a district event, and so I stole a couple of his notes. And so these are his three, instruction, imitation, and immersion. Both Albert and I are trained teachers, and so this really resonates with us. It makes sense to us. So first of all, instruction. So what I want you to do is talk to the person beside you, okay, or around you, and talk. How can instruction grow me spiritually? Okay, so discuss that. In what ways can instruction grow me spiritually? Go ahead. Okay, so what were some of those ways? What did some people come up with? Instruction. How do we go grow through instruction? Okay, listening to the Lord, directly from the Lord. What else? Joanne, what do you think? Yeah, definitely. Sunday school. Mm-hmm. What else? Being mentored, right? One-on-one instruction. How about through the great sermons, guys? Come on. <laughs> right now, media, right? All of you have an invite. If you don't have an invitation to join Right Now Media, it's like the Netflix of Bible studies. Then just let one of the let just let Pastor Jeff know, and he'll get you connected. Podcasts online sermons, Christian books, Christian devotionals, all these different ways that we can get instruction, right? Let me just say, though, 30 minutes on a Sunday morning is not enough. It is not enough. On average, an American spends 28 hours on TV, watching TV in a week. So 28 hours of TV versus 30 minutes of sermon. What are we allowing to shape our minds? Right? 30 minutes on a Sunday morning is not enough. Something else to consider. A New Testament professor from Biola University in an article he said that biblical illiteracy has reached a crisis point. Christians don't know how to read the Bible. Right? And it's no wonder that Christianity is becoming more and more convoluted and more misrepresented because Christians, we don't know what it says in the Bible. And if we don't know what it says in the Bible, we don't know who he is. We don't know what his promises are for us. We don't know what his teachings are. We need to know how to read and understand the Bible. And Joanne was mentioning the the Bible, the Sunday school classes. Um, Ivy's teaching one. in, with more, more of the prime timers, they seem to congregate with her and learn, learn with, uh, through that Sunday school. So Wes and Celine, they teach Sunday school as well. And so they're teaching this Bible method, this Sunday school, and some of you have heard this, some of you have not. But it's a, it's a method that I, I started here with the adult Sunday school class. And it got, it's got to the point where Somebody from some Christian magazine came in the documentary on it because he, he felt that this had to come, go out to the public. The reason why people are biblically illiterate is because they're being spoon-fed at church, right? And so I, I put this, this, uh, this, this method together where everybody comes and it's more like a potluck, right? Everybody kind of feeds each other. And, and I gave them simple tools on how to do that. 
right? And when they came and filmed it, I, I told some of you, I did the wrong homework. I prepared for the wrong lesson, and I over-prepared just in case people got shy, you know, that I would do all the talking and sound all wise and everything. I came with the wrong lesson. And so everybody else did the talking. I did nothing. All I did was facilitate. I said nothing. And the camera guy, he said, you know what, Christine, I felt like I was in seminary class. Learn how to read the Bible. Learn it. I've taught this method to pastors, to lay leaders in other districts. People, strangers have come to me in tears, literally in tears, saying, you have opened up a whole new world for me and my faith because they had access to the Bible, right? Check out a Sunday school class. Learn how to read the Bible. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, it says, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. This is what the word of God does. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped to do every good work. This is the power of scripture. All right? Let it change and renew your minds. Okay, next. First one was instruction, second one, imitation. Um, so in Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So talk to, with your groups again. How can we use imitation to grow spiritually? Go ahead. Okay, on what were some ways? Find a mentor. Find a mentor, right? Find a mentor. Im- imitate your mentor. What else? Who else? Well, a couple of ways that I use imitation in my life to spiritually grow. Uh, Albert and I, we have a couples group. And in that couples group, they're all couples, and we're, we're focused on how to intersect the Bible with our marriage, right? And to the, we're at the point now where we just bring out our dirty laundry, and, you know, it's really, really heavy. But we allow other couples to speak into our lives and we speak into other people's lives. It is such a powerful time. We learn from each other. We grow from each other. And, um, and that's been a way for us to imitate, use imitation to spiritually grow. Another way is that I have an accountability partner, someone that I meet with once a week, and we just dump on each other, right? We talk about it, our problems, our challenges, and, and we try to speak God's uh, truth into each other's lives, and then we pray for each other. Those are one of my most powerful times where I really do grow spiritually from this woman, right? So accountability partner, go, being involved in a couple's, or I'm sorry, not a couple's, any life group, right? Um, all right, so number, oh, I, I do want to add You know, the Lord uses the body of Christ to speak into your life. And this is the body of Christ. It's the people sitting around you, right? He uses people to speak into our lives. And it is so important for us to open up our lives to people in order to hear from them. And sometimes the Lord uses you in mighty ways to speak into someone else's life. We have to be that for each other. And we can't do that in two hours on a Sunday morning. We have to meet outside of that to be able to do that. Okay? Third one, immersion. Okay, the third way is immersion. That's instruction through an extensive exposure to an environment that causes growth 
an experience. It's the doing, right? And so talk to a neighbor and talk about how can immersion, how can we use this tool to grow spiritually? Carol, what are some things that you came up with? Getting involved, actively doing. Participating in family promise, good one. What else? What do you think, Karen? Being a greeter or usher, like what if a new person, like a visitor comes to our church, it's the first time ever that they've walked into a church, you get to be that person, right? And allowing the Holy Spirit to work through you to greet them in love. Yeah. So it's when you teach a class, when you lead a group, or when you're involved with Family Promise, or when you go on a missions trip, all of these ways, when you feed the poor, like these are, when we walk out in obedience and serve him, and this is why this is so important, why it's so powerful. It's because when he asks us to do something, he then equips us to do it, right? He molds us and equips us. And I tell people when they're training to lead a small group or whatever or teach a class, I always tell them, you will grow exponentially more than anybody else in the class, right? So to walk out in obedience. Um, I went through a season of my life when, when Eli was a baby, right? And it was actually the, one of my first seasons of life when the word of God just suddenly became alive to me, right? I just couldn't get enough of it. I would read and study, and I'd be like, whoa, God, this is so amazing. I would take joy in reading the Bible. I would just eat it and digest it and think about it. And then after a while, that kind of faded. I mean, I didn't do anything different. I was continuing to read it and study it, but it became almost joyless. And I'm like, God, what's going on? Like, why do I feel so spiritually dry? And I felt through that season that the Lord was telling me, it's because you're getting spiritually fat. You know, here I am feeding you and feeding you and feeding you, and you're just taking that just for yourself. The reason why you feel spiritually dry is because you're getting spiritually fat. You know, Christians in America, we don't suffer from the lack of spiritual feeding. Maybe we can say that in China where Bibles are illegal. Here, we can click on a button, right? We have commentaries, um, like Bible dictionaries, everything, Bible studies at our fingertips. You know, we do not lack from spiritual feeding. We get spiritually fed, Right? And then we become insular. right? We stay in our Christian bubbles where we are comfortable and, and where we're safe. We eat and eat and eat, and we don't work out our faith and fear and trembling. And we become spiritual couch potatoes. In Ezekiel 16.49, it says, Now this was a sin of the people of Sodom. It wasn't sexual perversion. This is the sin of the people of Sodom. They were arrogant, they were overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. Doesn't that sound a lot like the Christian church, the American Christian church? So some of you, you complain about feeling spiritually dry, and you blame it on your surroundings. 
you have access to so much at your fingertips. But perhaps the water in your cup is stale because you have not been pouring it out to others. Right? You have this, this cup that the Lord filled and you just hold that and it becomes stale. He won't fill it again until you pour it out to others. Right? And then he gives you fresh water. Maybe this is why you're feeling spiritual dry. Right? Because you're, you're, you're getting fed and you're not working out your faith by blessing other people. Proverbs 11.25, it says, Those that water shall be watered. I love that verse. And the ISB version, so powerful, says anyone who gives water will receive a flood in return. Jesus pours in your cup. It's not just for you. It is for the sake of other people. When Jesus, when the Lord, when the Holy Spirit spiritually forms you, it is not just for you. It is for the people around you. Okay, so at the end of each sermon, the pastors, we've been giving some practical takeaways to put into action right away, right? So in response to today's sermon, I encourage you, and I know this is a big ask for some of you, to find an accountability partner. Someone that is godly, someone that you trust, someone that you could talk about your troubles, your fears, your joys, someone that you can pray together. Connect with them once a week. And even as I'm saying this, I know that a lot of you will not. Right? I know that. Well, sometimes it's fear, right? And if it is, please come talk to me about it. I will find an accountability partner that you can trust. But sometimes it's because we're just okay. I come into church maybe once a week, maybe once every other week. We're okay with that. You know, and, and, and you don't want to take this discipleship thing too seriously. We're okay at being one-year-old Christians recycled 30 times. We're okay at looking like this. You know, I'm not judging you. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I just want to encourage you. Let me, let me say this, okay? Jesus wants us to be all in. I'm going to close. I know I said that before, but I'm going to close. He wants us to give him every part of our lives, right? And it's not because he wants to rob us or steal the desires of our hearts, that, that he wants to make us feel uncomfortable, right? He does this because he knows that what he offers is so much better, so much more than what the world could possibly offer us. And when we empty ourselves from our own desires, our own will, and we fill that with the desires of the Lord and his will for our lives, I promise you, not even, like God promises you that it will be a life overflowing with abundance and satisfaction, a life that is filled with his love, where our ashes turn to beauty, our mourning to joy, and our despair into praise. That's what he promises.
Let's pray. Father God, you have so much to give. Your heart's desire, the heart of a good, good father, your heart's desire is to give good things for your children. And we just ask for forgiveness today, Lord, for the ways that we rejected, that we weighed, the ways that we refused to partake in your blessings because we feel like what we can get on our own is better. God, we pray for wisdom, Lord, insight. Father God, to see when you are offering your hand out to us, Lord. God, that we have the wisdom to take, Father God, to say no to the things of our own lives, Lord. I pray, Father God, that we will sit humbly at your feet and say, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go, not just geographically, everywhere, in every part of our lives. And Lord, thank you. We praise you because you have the patience to allow us to inch along when we inch along. You have the patience to discipline us in your loving, gentle ways when we turn our backs on you, Father God, and you just welcome us back and you forgive and you forgive and you forgive. Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit in each of us today just gives us that sense of hunger, Lord, to receive the things that you have to offer us, that we will take everything that you have to offer, Lord. I pray that you open up a relationship with with somebody, an accountability partner that we could share our spiritual journeys with, Lord. God, I pray most of all, Lord, as a church, next year when we stand up against the doorframe to see how much we've spiritually grown, we can see that we are not doing one plus one equals a two anymore, Lord, and that we will praise you, that we know how to do extended matrices, Father God. Lord, I thank you for your love and your faithfulness in our lives. In Jesus' name.